Welcome to World of Gas, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Eric Frank. Eric is the founder and CEO of Lightbox, a GIS real estate data company. Prior to Lightbox, he was the president of the investment and advisory division at Thomson Reuters and the creator of ADR.com. Eric, welcome to World of Dats. Great to be here. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited. Now, there's obviously a lot of changes in the commercial real estate world since the beginning of the pandemic. Are there particular classes of real estate that maybe our audience might not realize? Maybe they're niche things that are actually doing really well and that are counter-cyclical in this environment? I think the current environment we're in is very new, and I don't think we know exactly what's going to play out there. But during the last two years of COVID, and there were businesses that did very well and businesses that did poorly. It wouldn't surprise that the hotel industry is doing incredibly well. And now the hotels are full. The multifamily business, the industrial business, to a certain extent, bolts onto where are people living? What resources do they want to have around them? And how do you build a community there? Those have done tremendously well over the last several years to levels nobody has ever seen before. If you think of like certain spaces, consumers definitely have changed their minds about the things that they want in a home over the last few years because they're spending more time there at work and having other types of things. What are the big shifts about what people want in commercial real estate? What has changed there? Follows a lot of the same trends. Multifamily building would be considered commercial building from perspective. And so if you're building a multifamily or you're acquiring a multifamily building, people are, are looking for what's the package room look like? Is there a bike repair room? Where are the common areas? Because we're into community and so forth. How digital is getting in and out of the building? And how digital is my experience to interact and pay my rent and not have to put up three months of security deposit because there's other tools now in the marketplace. So I think there's a path where people want to be able to work from home more. They want to have things. And then where's the home located? If you look at where people moved during COVID, unsurprisingly, there's a pop. Uh, commercial development in and around or reuse in and around those areas because that's where the money is. Are there kind of like non-obvious areas of the country that you expect will continue or maybe now do very, very well? We saw a lot of movement into the big metros around the Sun Belt areas, and we continue to see that. You see articles, but we don't have a great crystal ball. I mean, this industry is very backward looking. There's not a lot of great information as to where things are going. There's a lot more information about what happened. But we expect to see that trend to continue. There's this saying in real estate, location, location, location. Where is that true and where is that false? Well, look, if your location is in a state that isn't friendly to corporations or you've seen states from a taxation perspective or from a regulatory perspective or from a climate perspective. I don't even talk about climate change. You say it's cold. Let's go somewhere warm. Those kind of things obviously impact a lot of decision making. You've got a well-located office building and people aren't coming to the office. Guess what? That's going to be turned into something else because it's still well-located and well-located in where people want to be. You guys put out a 2022 market report, Lightbox did, and you said there was actually a lot more demand for industrial space than supply. I would have thought we would have reached peak there. What's driving all that demand? It's probably 
three trends, I would guess. I mean, the obvious one that we all think about is the e-commerce related impact. More people are moving into this area and people are just so used to getting things delivered quickly and not going out to shop for themselves. So there's a big opportunity there. The second one is supply chain related. If you see in certain places where more things are being brought back into the U.S. or neighboring countries like Arizona is building, you can't get an industrial property in Arizona because of the proximity to Mexico and all the auto part industry that's there and being able to store that. And the third one are corporate relocations. When you have a big manufacturer, a Tesla or a TSMC that's building a $40 billion plant, guess what? They're going to have an entire group of supplying companies that have to follow them to that area. And it's all industrial and they're going to need a warehouse and they're going to need industrial space to build the community around that. And these things are still driving that activity. And it helps where you can adaptively reuse things like malls and other things are turned into e-commerce or fulfillment or returns and things like that. I don't see that abating. Most of the data, this is more where the economists come in. They still see a lot of growth there. I think you read occasionally Amazon is scaling back themselves, but there are a lot of other, your other brick and mortars are becoming e-commerce companies at the same time. And so I was just in a neighborhood, great redeveloped neighborhood, and there's no supermarket there because everybody's getting their food delivered, I guess. Yeah, it's really interesting. And look, ghost kitchens, and you go on DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever, and you're looking for dinner. And you see all of these choices. You're like, I never walked past any of these restaurants. And well, because they don't exist. It's just a big old kitchen in a warehouse space that on Monday, they're making Italian and Tuesday, they're making Chinese or whatever. And pretty cool. That's really interesting. You tweeted recently about the real page scandal where property management software was allegedly colluding to drive up rents. Talk about the dark side of software and real estate a bit. It's so funny because I try to put articles out there that I think are interesting. Some of them are real estate. Some of them are Michigan Wolverine football. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm just so sensitive because you hear people say so-and-so tweeted, you know, all the controversies about what people are tweeting. In this one, I just think that's interesting. Is it real? I'm not sure. I read a lot of the comments, but more data is coming into our world all the time. Everything about us is cataloged in social media and all your activities on the internet. And somebody is building a calculation on that, determining what ads you see, what credit cards you get, what offers you get, what prices you get. And inherent in that is people make mistakes. There's bias in these programs. I think there are a lot of people that are very concerned that if the world becomes, you've seen it before, college admissions, and somebody was denied this and denied that, and then they go back and they look at it and they go, well, inadvertently, all these prejudices gone into this program. <laughs> well, on the one hand, it's very comforting to think that there's not an individual sitting there deciding the answer for you and I about something and that it's brought to a machine that has no emotion to tie to it. But garbage in, garbage out. If the data is not complete or some biases are entered into it or it hasn't really been thought through, you can have some really ugly things that come out of there as well. There's plenty of academic papers on bias in these things. Though rents are, are hard to price, it, you do need a lot of data and it can be underpriced and obviously then you're leaving a lot of profit on the table. It also could often be overpriced and it could encourage people to start looking around and look for other things. And you see a lot of these vacant storefronts that they probably could have rented, but they didn't do it. The world is going towards, I think, what we associate with airplane pricing. The price you see this minute, 
on an airplane ticket. Sometimes you look at it and you go, what the hell? How'd they come up with that? I think you're going to see that in lots of different places. You're going to see that. I was told on Ticketmaster now, but it's not like the ticket was priced at $85. The ticket was priced depending on what time of the day you came in, how much demand and other factors. And you could see something for $125 that an hour ago is $85. And so I think in the apartment space, it's the same thing. Look, I think it's a good thing. The inventory owner is using data to get a better gauge of supply and demand rather than what they were doing before. They would pay somebody to call all the other multifamily buildings in the neighborhood and do mystery shopping. How many units do you have? What are you charging for them? And they're optimizing for that supply and demand. Now, the construct of that article was, well, what if they're everywhere? Can they artificially push, pull the price up? Some regulator will look at that. But I think inherently... It's just data, and they're just being smarter about use of data and modernizing where those things are happening everywhere else. I'm sure every time I look at a price in Amazon, I look at the price of Chewy, I look at the price in Amazon, where am I going to get the cat food from? And everybody's looking at the same data and airplane seat price. You also recently tweeted a Fortune article from The Economist, Nero Rubini, saying he made this claim that people are making a bad investment moving from moving to Florida or moving to Texas or something like that because of the potential climate change impact on those states. How do you think real estate investors should be thinking about that over both the short term and the long term? Oh, yeah, for sure. If you're not thinking about it, your lenders and your developers and buyers. See, if you start at the residential level, there's been some interesting data. First Street has put out a national flood model and the FEMA data from the federal government is terrible. There's lots of areas that they'll tell you it doesn't flood, but is going to flood and has been flooding. <laughs> and so Realtor.com put that out. I think it was Realtor. Maybe it was Redfin. Sorry to our friends at Redfin. They showed that the people looking at that data were just smarter buyers and could factor that in so they wouldn't buy a house that was in a flood zone. The same applies to everything else. There are so many hazards and the climate flooding there's coastal flooding and riverine flooding and all sorts of flooding and there's heat and there's wind and there's fire and all of those kind of things. If you're not building that into your model, you're going to run into a problem. It just depends on what your horizon is. How long am I going to own this property for? How long is my loan going to be out of that property? Because the chance of you being impacted is great. And you have people that are regional lenders. So if you're sitting there lending in Louisiana, 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 you're going to get flooded. Right? And if you haven't considered a model that projects where things are happening and the resiliency of the properties in those flood zones and the investments that may or may not be taking place to shore up those areas, you're going to get burned. It doesn't seem, at least today, to affect the real estate of Miami, that's been going up dramatically. Even if you think of the Hamptons, which is a huge potential hurricane flood zone in the future. I saw something. We had David Pogue come to one of our client conferences and he showed something three days a month in Miami that the streets flood and it never rained because it's all coming up from underneath. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but you would think that the data suggests that Miami is going to be flooded. So why would you put your money there? We had that terrible storm recently in Florida and people were coming in, bidding up the properties <laughs> thereafter. So I don't know. It doesn't seem like the typical real estate, if you truly believe in climate change, maybe people just say that they do and they don't realize it's always hard to know. But if you truly believe in climate change, you might be investing in places in like Wisconsin or Minnesota or something that all this stuff around the lakes. Yeah, they're going to start having milder winters. They're going to be probably more desirable in the future. 
but it doesn't seem like that's where the real estate money is going. Is it because they only have a five or 10 year horizon and they don't have the 20 to 40 year horizon or? I think it's a combination of things. I think there's still obviously some skepticism out there for some of this stuff. The model is a model. I think it is also, there are insurers, there are public real estate owners, there are lenders, there are developers, there are all sorts of different constituents in this ecosystem of real estate. And I think different ones are at a different place than some others. I think alternative data in real estate is not broadly used, not widely used. It's not widely used when people are valuing properties, when people are thinking about developing properties, when people are thinking about buying properties. This industry still has room to go to bring in other interesting data sets of which including greenhouse gas emissions, climate, and so forth. However, I do see more of that happening. And that's where one of the thesis for Lightbox really was to be able to help people with this. Because one of the challenges of this, Oren, is, and you know this from your side of the industry, is these climate data sets and the property and location data you need to support the climate data set because you got to know where the property is and where the climate model is talking about and intersect that geospatially. These are massive models. These are huge. And so you've got to have a platform where you've got all the location information, all the property information, all the attribute information, all of that's there. And then you have to be able to choose between various different, if it's greenhouse gas, that's one thing. If it's a climate model, there are multiple and there's a lot of religion about this stuff. What we're trying to do is create that platform for people where they can come in We have a greenhouse gas emission model that we built with the Department of Energy and the Oak Ridge Laboratory that we supply. There are multiple flood models and other climate models. And then the customer really is down to the chef. The light boxes provide me the kitchen, the ingredients, the pots and pans, but I'm going to have to figure out how to combine those things. That's much more manageable than today, which is I got to do all those things. I got to shop for it and whatever. And so I think we'll see more adoption as folks like Lightbox and others create the platforms that make it easier for people to deal with these data sets because they're incredibly large and you've got to look at multiple. There's no one model that people go, that's the right one. I think that's part of the challenge. And then part of it is just this industry is going to become more quantitative. There's no question about it. When we started Lightbox, the view was this industry was 20 years behind financial services just to pull a figure. There's still a lot of room to go. Now we're just 18 years behind or something. But a lot of it has to do with having a vendor community that is there to support these things. Because if every single asset manager and every single lender and every single acquisition firm has to have their own wherewithal to suck all the data in and figure all that all out and compile the property information, forget it. It'll never work. And until recently, there weren't platforms like that for the industry. And it does seem like, at least in in real estate, especially commercial real estate, it does seem like the level of tech sophistication, the amount of engineers and data scientists that these firms employ is extremely low compared to almost any other industry, any industry of size that I can think of, whether it's insurance or financial services or even retail or something, has a much higher percentage of engineers and data scientists. Why is that? First of all, do you agree? And then why is that? Of you? I think it's a fair statement. It goes back to what I said about the industry. Just because they want to touch the dirt type of, they're coming from that mentality? Or I scratch my head a little bit. I'm excited by it because it's, it created Lightbox. And sure. Created- yeah, it's an opportunity for you. It's hard for me to totally understand the dynamic that we're in. Part of it is, I think, business has made a lot of money. People have done very well. You could execute, you could do things without the tools that you're talking about. The business was 
in some ways less competitive and more entrenched. But now things have changed and there is more data. There's a younger generation that's coming in. There are other attributes of the world like climate, the data that you guys have, who's walking around, what stores they're going into, who are they? Applying all of other information to an analysis just gets you to a better result. And it's, I call it, I've seen the movie before, and maybe that's just the time now for real estate. There is a small element of, I don't really want to go here so far, but there were other vendors in this space, and I don't think they were well-trusted. They did some things that concerned people, and I think maybe that set the industry back a little bit. Outside of that, maybe it's just now's the time. I think to a question we started with, the change is that I think the enterprises understand this. They are recruiting the talent you're talking about. They are bringing people in from data industries. It's not just about real estate expertise. It's about how do I work with data and technology? Because the whole portfolio of property management and leasing and everything that these firms get involved with will benefit from a more data-intensive perspective. A lot of our listeners are people who work at data companies or on data companies, et cetera. And I know you're a data guy. What data do you wish existed in the real estate world that it's just hard to get or just it doesn't exist or it's not accurate? And what do you wish if you could just snap your fingers? Oh, you're like, oh, I wish I had this. I'm biased here. I like that it's hard. It's good for you. I think if I would put the lens on of some other people, not necessarily the light box lens, but the I'm a broker, I'm an owner, I'm a this or a that. There's so much opacity in real estate. You want to buy a house, you know how much that house sold for, you know all the specifics of it, you know market for, blah, 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 blah. You can't get any of that stuff. You're looking at a building, there are multiple leases and how much were the leases done at. All of that information that goes into valuation just isn't readily available. The information that people publish are asking rent, not what actually transacted. So I think there's a lot of demand for people to have more real-time, real information on what's really happening and how much time something is on the market. What's the real cap rate? What are people really paying for rent? What are the incentives that are really happening? What did the building sell for? How long was it on the market? I think that's an element that people like from a data perspective. And I think over time that will come. The exhaust of all the transactions are going to get, somebody's going to be able to pull a lot of this stuff together. And I think the industry will say, let's go in and share some of this information. And then you'll see more transparency. I think it works to certain people's benefit that there isn't transparency. You can be a smarter broker if you know what these five properties traded for. We know from prior worlds and prior lives and prior industries, it doesn't have staying power. Data... Want to get you. <laughs> One of the interesting things about Lightbox is you've really built this as an acquirer. You've acquired different assets over time and put them together under one brand. What is it like to start a company with the goal of doing acquisitions rather than the typical way you think of starting a company? I'm going to like, I'm going to build a company over time. We had two options, if you will. We started with the thesis that I came from the financial information world. I looked after all the knowledge workers that we had at Thomson Reuters, asset managers, wealth managers, investment bankers, and so forth, know a lot about how people use data and analytics to do their jobs. And I drew a comparison between real estate and that world and lots of similarities, but real estate was grossly underserved, a lot of duplication, all of the things that led into Lightbox wanting, wanting me to create a company. And my view was, 
that company, there were assets out there. There were pieces, fragments of things that could be brought together. And then from the loins of that, we could organically build the pieces that we didn't have. It was just a path to market. We would be at the five-yard line now. Yeah, of course. A team of five and $5 million. And so it was a path there. It was a recognition that there were some really great assets, but standing alone, they weren't as compelling as if you would bring them together. And it was the vision of doing that. You can't be prescriptive about this stuff. I have my shopping list. You can't get everything that's on your shopping list for obvious reasons, but we did a really nice job. And so we pulled together capabilities, assets, got the scale that enables us to have relationships with customers, trusted relationships, be an integral part of a lot of the different workflows of the commercial real estate industry. And the market is very multi-sided. You're selling something, you're buying something, you're lending, you're borrowing, you're doing something, you need due diligence providers. And because we touch so many of these people, it was easier for us to go in and say, hey, let's talk about this problem you have. Let's talk about this inefficiency. Let's talk about these redundancies. Don't you think there's something that we can do? And a lot of people are like, yeah, you can solve that. We can't solve that ourselves. You can solve that. We trust you. We know you do good work in helping us market our property. We know you're the leader in environmental data. We know you represent all the lenders. And so the credibility that we got from buying some really fantastic brands and great customer relationships and great people enable us to get where we're trying to go, aren't We got a lot of room to continue to grow and to develop into the company that we want to be. But I think it was just the time to market that we've never been able to do. And I'm very respectful. And I think the prop tech industry is fantastic. But you see the challenges that they have. They end up with very narrow solutions, very regional solution. They spent all the money. Any SaaS companies like that. Very hard to get going. Very hard to get time with the customer. Very hard to get credibility. And so I think we jumped all that by doing it the way we did it. Obviously, you need capital to be able to do that. And that was the route we took. Integrating companies is really, really hard. What do you wish you knew today that you didn't know back when you started? Back when I started in the financial information, those were where I learned the lessons. Yeah. Okay. Find it here. I'm not making the mistakes we made over there. So there's no tolerance for spaghetti. There's no tolerance for all this legacy infrastructure. There's no tolerance for Frankenstein. So, I mean, I'm sure you buy some company who's got some spaghetti or got legacy. So is it just get in there and fix it ASAP type of thing? Or it's one of two things. Either we're going to go after that or we are transitioning it to brand new technology and we're going to retire it because it's too legacy and we can't do it. And so there's a trade-off there, time to market and investment. And we went the longer time to market and the more money because we want to have a very well-integrated, modern stack that we can connect all these different workflows to and allow our customers to connect their systems to it and have something brand new and modern I learned from the past. In terms of learning here, I think probably the basic learnings are things take longer than you think they do. We've made projections on where we're going to be or how much adoption we'd get on a project, a product, and probably spent a lot of money sooner than we should have on certain things where the market wasn't there yet. But all things considered, we're pretty excited about where we are. As an acquirer, you're out there trying to acquire the companies. In today's market, there's all this uncertainty around valuation. I can imagine it's tough to acquire a company today when potential valuation is changing so rapidly. It might be 50% of what it was a year ago, but it might be more than it was two months ago. How do you deal with this uncertainty? 
So it affects the buyer and seller a little bit differently. Buyer side, my uncertainty is, am I going to be able to project what I can do with this asset if we acquire it and what we're going to pay for it. I have to worry about sources of funding for that. We've done a lot of balance sheet deals where Lightbox didn't need any capital, but depending on how big the transaction is, we may need some capital. The uncertainty comes from where we are right now, where are interest rates going and so forth. The bid-ask spread is probably the biggest part of the conversation between the entrepreneur who X months ago, thought the company was worth this and was on a trajectory. And now looking at, I can't fund the company, whatever. The nice thing for Lightbox in that equation is because we have a lot of scale and we have a lot of capabilities and customers and things, we can do a lot with an asset that that individual and the entrepreneur couldn't do with. And so we can- She might be able to accelerate it faster or something. Yeah. And we can say, look, come in here. Let me introduce you to the four or five other company entrepreneurs that have joined up with Lightbox and saw their vision <laughs> come to realization. So, But at the end of the day, there's going to be a gap. There's a gap. What we're seeing more of are companies that aren't able to get additional funding to keep going. Yeah, well, that's easy. Obviously, if they can't get additional funding and they're unprofitable, then they're a forced seller. They are, but do you want to be the buyer? Like yeah, some of the right. things you look at and go, do I want to take that loss onto our books at this point? Like, what's the magic that we're going to fix that? And so, some of the things, if we have a lot of conviction that, oh, inside of here, this is a perfect fit. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. We can bridge that. So, all those things are going on. The flip side, let's say, I'm sure a lot of companies you're looking at are very EBITDA positive. It's good business. It's maybe not growing as fast as they would like, but it's growing. It's fine. They wish they could accelerate it more. I can imagine a lot of these people running those businesses be like, I'm just going to wait another six months. I'm going to wait another 12 months just to see what happens with the market. It parallels the real estate market. The seller isn't going to be there at that price, but I don't need to sell. I'm not going to. My expectations were higher. And if I can't afford to keep going, and I have a path to keep going unless there are some other strategic reasons for doing something. Yeah, you hold the asset and wait for a sunny day. Now, a year ago, you put out a very in-depth national broadband map. Why is that important? And what did you learn from it? Part of Lightbox's mission is to give back to our communities and to engage our employees who don't show up at work just because they love working on commercial real estate. A lot of them want to make sure that there's a mission here that they're aligned with. And the scale of the problem of uh, lack of broadband across the country creates incredible inequality and equity. And so we wanted to do that to demonstrate both what our capabilities were as a company, but also our ability to give back to the community. And if you look at the scope of the problem, people talk about availability of broadband. That's part of the problem. There's an adoption problem where people... Because it's affordability too as well. I have affordability, but I don't know how to use it. I don't have a computer and things like that. A lot gets talked about. And if you look at one of the things that we have, we have a tremendous amount of data. And so when we did the map, we overlaid a lot of other things. And perhaps not too surprising is that the most challenging areas are the ones that are in flood zones are in heat zones, we're subject to redlining or their tribal areas. And so the importance, and obviously the government has recognized this and put the infrastructure bill in place and are trying to get funding out there. At some point in time, electricity wasn't something that everybody had. You had to run the poles and, and get it to the right locations. And so we've been able to identify the scope of what's underserved, bring visibility to that, demonstrate 
that private sector data companies can do a lot more than the government can around some of these things. But then we've also made that data available to lots of public interest groups to help them advocate in their communities and get our employee base excited that they can make a difference. It's interesting. One of the trends of COVID is maybe a side trend is people working from home and they might want to move into places a little bit more rural, get a lot more land. Maybe they like a lot of land or something like that. But a lot of those places, very, very difficult to get good broadband. It's hard to bring it out there. So they buy the house of their dreams, but then they're dealing with a very substandard solution to their home. And it's not just the folks that are going into an area that's more impoverished or the economics don't serve the cable company or the telecom company to go out there. Sometimes you're just finding a nice home, but the distance to the telecom infrastructure is such that nobody's running the cables to you. Yeah, yeah. And so a buddy of mine bought something and he's like, I'm out here, I'm trying to work. I got this satellite dish, it's terrible. And he got Starlink recently. And while that's not a panacea, it's been a lifesaver for him. He can afford that. They were willing to put the infrastructure in in that community. But it's very true. I mean, it's telemedicine. It's work from home. It's school. It's even the Justice Department. There's more things that the courts are doing online. The inequity of you can't get online and it's just unbelievable. Most of the states have wrapped their heads around this. They know they got to fight for their constituents and they're going in and doing the work and figuring out where the gaps are, applying for the grants, or else they won't be competitive. Back to what we were talking about earlier, people are not going to move to your district if they can't get Wi-Fi, broadband speed Wi-Fi. You can't live without it. Used to be a city, a Youngstown, Ohio, or something like that. Their goal would be to get some employer to move there and bring nice, good, solid jobs that are going to pay people their factory or something like that. But nowadays, because of the fluidity of where people can live, they're moving to a place that might have ideally good broadband, some good schools. Maybe there's some nice natural beauty there. Maybe they have some good neighbors. Maybe there's some good restaurants. They're really changing how they think about that. How is that just generally affecting things? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I've seen the advertisements. Communities like, come to whatever. We'll pay you $4,000 to move here. I saw a report and I didn't get a chance to read it fully. The notion of it, I think it was from Wired Score, was basically, to your point, people are coming to where the broadband is and the fiber is and the connectivity is and things build upon themselves as more people come in. I saw somewhere, can't remember where it was, but company town and the company decided they had to build restaurants and other attractions and people want the parks and the open spaces and the restaurants and the connectivity and access to an airport, that's a big deal too for people. Right, exactly. You want a quality airport. How many hops do I have to take to get somewhere and things like that? So look, I think real estate, this is why data is so important. When you're thinking about real estate, when you're thinking about how all the home builders are on the Lightbox platform, they look for assemblages of parcels. We have to feed them more and more sophisticated information about zoning, about geospatial distance to different things. They care about different things today. It used to be the school score or whatever, school grades or whatever. It's a more nuanced world. And you got to apply a lot of data and figure out you know, what are people looking for, where they're looking to go and being ahead of the curve. You're not going to do that unless you have a data strategy. Now, I know your main hat, your main job is CEO of Lightbox, but also on the side, you're co-founder of The Tie, which is like a Bloomberg terminal for crypto. You see a pattern here? Bloomberg terminal floor. <laughs> totally. 
you know, we're in a very interesting time in the crypto world. What are some of the interesting leading indicators of the crypto data that you look at? <laughs> so I helped my son start this company about six months before I started Lightbox. So I'm going to give him most of the credit for where the company is today. Life was simpler in crypto back then. But <laughs> prior to the last six months of all the wonderful news people reading about, a lot of what I looked at was adoption. What are the mainstream institutions doing? What are the state street banks doing? What are the city banks doing? What are the fidelities doing? How many of the real institutional, smart institutional investors are trading in crypto? What are the products and the services that are being made available to people? And there was a lot of good news out there. And there was a lot of nonsense too, but there was a lot of good news and there was a real trend there. And a lot of people have bought into the idea of a digital currency being a frictionless way to trade. Some other people have store of value for Bitcoin. You've got a lot of industries running on blockchains for lots of interesting reasons. Of course, today it's been a bit sullied, but dot-com and other things, I think there'll be things that come out of the ruins and continue. And I, I don't think digital currency is going away. There are going to be a lot of folks that were coming into this space that are going to think otherwise. There are probably sovereign wealth funds and others that dabbled who got burnt two or three times and are going to walk away from the space. But I think there's still a lot of reasons to be excited about the technology. It's really, instead of paying Western Union and going to the bank and getting foreign exchange, there's lots of interesting reasons to have a digital currency to be in a hyperinflation market, to have your money in something. There are lots of compelling things, unfortunately, in a relatively unregulated FOMO market, people have done some dumb things and sets everybody back. It seems like social conversations have been really driving some crypto and whether it's on Twitter or Discord or you name the platform. Is there any way to create like a sentiment metric to know what's going on there? And is that something you guys think about? That was the origin of the company, funny enough. Right? So my son was trading Bitcoin while he was doing his day job a number of years ago. This is probably six years ago. And I asked him the same thing. Give me an explanation of why the price is moving today. There's no fundamentals. There's no data. It was mostly just Bitcoin and a little bit of Ethereum trading. And it was just what you said. It was momentum trading based upon conversations and what people were saying. And so, again, going back to my financial services world, I had a relationship with a company that was doing sentiment analysis for equities, ingesting social media feeds. And so I said, why don't we just apply that to a conversation sort of about crypto? So to do that, you need to have access to the data. So we had access to the data. You have to create data models that are very specific to the the particular instruments because the ticker of Ethan Allen, ETH and Ethereum, if you can't separate the conversation, furniture and that, you're going to get some really wacky results. The sentiment models are available. People have been building sentiment models for years and you're applying it to this history of out of sample data. And then the hard part though is what does it mean? Once you get the score back, how do you take that score? And so today people use the sentiment data in a multi-factor way. In a momentum market, you could just trade off of the signal, but in a more nuanced market, you have to understand how do I use that factor? And so our business has expanded into lots of other data sets, but it started with sentiment. This has been amazing. Thank you very much, Eric. Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? <laughs> oh, goodness. I, I had time to think about this too, I think. 
I don't know how conventional it is, but I succeeded somebody in a role one time and they gave me this advice, move slowly and don't break things. And I think that's not great advice if move quickly and break the china. There's a reason that the chair has changed to somebody else to be sitting in it. And if you move slowly, chances are you're going to be the next one out the door. So look, I don't want to obviously generalize, but I think if you're in a fast moving industry, if you're coming in to change management, if you're looking to make a mark, you can't move slowly and worry about breaking things. You got to move a little faster. You got to break a few things. And how do you bring everybody along with you as you break the stuff? You have to bring everybody along with you. Otherwise, you're not leaving, right? How do you do it? How do you do that? Yeah. You have to have a vision that people believe in. You have to have some credibility with them over time. You earn that. On day one, we buy a lot of companies. When you're buying the companies, the most important asset are the people. A lot of people ask, what's the culture of Lightbox? How do you create the culture of Lightbox? And you do that by your actions. And you do that by, do you walk the talk? And do you take care of people? And do you respect people? And do you look at yourselves as a component of people's world and life and not the only thing that they care about? And so hopefully people self-select, people walk out the door. We don't have 100% population of the people that came over from company A and B and C. But a lot of times they came from companies that had a very different lifestyle and a focus. And so Lightbox changed that. But I think you lead by demonstrating that you're credible, that you're looking out for your employees, that you can deliver results, that you're consistent, that you're, in our case, open, want conversation, want debate, want ideas, build a diverse management team, build a diverse company, and care about diverse things and have fun. We're all about having fun along the way. Okay, great. Well, I've had a lot of fun with this. This has been amazing. Thank you, Eric Frank, for joining us at World of Death. I follow you at Eric Frank on Twitter. Which, by the way, which is a great, I imagine that was a tough Twitter handle to get. <laughs> People are excited. Like, I'm efrank at Gmail also. Just gotten early. <laughs> you got in early. Okay, yeah. Well, you and I are up there in age, so we were early at all these things. Exactly. But I encourage all of our listeners to engage with you there. Thank you again for joining us in World of Death. It's been awesome. Super fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.